Well, hello, Baseline. It's good to have you with us again here today. And I'm going to start off today with a bit of a confession. And that is that uh, in my time here as pastor, and actually, I think most of the time that I've been a part of the church, we have not focused on racial reconciliation. We've not taken a Sunday to do that. We've not taken a series to do that. And, um, and we really should have as we've seen what's happened in our country these last um, few weeks, that there's a, a struggle out there and that we, whether we realize it or not, we are a part of it. So the next two Sundays are gonna be a little bit different and we're gonna focus on um, kind of the racial division in our country and also racial reconciliation. And um, in a bit here, Ken Zell will start off by um, kind of setting a, a biblical foundation for uh, listening and being open to what others say and, and what you might be saying to us too, what the Lord might be saying to us. And then we're gonna have an interview with um, Pastor Bob Smith from Fort Wayne, um, Indiana, who's an African-American pastor who will give us a little bit of a picture of um, what it's like to be African-American in our uh, country today. And then the following Sunday will be a better or a different time as we, um, again, just talk about these issues a little bit as a congregation. So I hope that you will um, stick with us on this. There'll be some resources we'll give you for next week that you can use as an adult or a family or as, as with your kids, as we really uh, kind of struggle with and work through this really important, important issue in our faith in these next couple of weeks. And this will just be a beginning for hopefully what God wants to do in us from now on. So let me pray for us and then um, Ken will come up and start with his message. So Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, this is an area you care so deeply about, justice and righteousness for all people. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take what we uh, do here today, what we do next week, what we will do in the following weeks, and really transform us and change us and help us to be agents of reconciliation agents of uh, bringing people together and so may you do a good work in our own hearts first and we are grateful lord for your love for your grace for your mercy and your transforming power that can change us to be like you we pray this in jesus name Thanks so much for those words, Don. It was April 29th, 1992. I can still remember the night that I watched South LA burn from the second floor window of my college dorm. Earlier that day, four LAPD officers that were on trial for assaulting Rodney King were found not guilty. And as word spread throughout uh, campus, classes were canceled. And uh, an impromptu gathering was organized for students in the center of campus. I sat on the grass and listened to black student after black student come up to the mic and express their feelings about the verdict. Feelings of sadness, of shock, of grief, and of anger. I especially remember the anger. And as I listened, my level of discomfort and tension 
and confusion grew. I didn't recognize the world that these students were describing. A world where police are not to be trusted, where racism is a fact of life, where injustice and inequality are undeni an undeniable reality. That was not the world I had grown up in or um, found myself in, in my experience. How could my reality and their reality coexist? Well, that night as the rioting began, the Christian fellowship on campus that I was a part of gathered in the chapel to pray. As we prayed, um, my black brothers and sisters that were a part of our fellowship began to pray with a, a different kind of emotion. They cried out to God. They wept before the Lord. They expressed their deep lament and grief, and they showed their anger. I had never seen anyone pray that way. And because it was foreign to me, I felt my discomfort and my tension and my confusion to grow even more. After the prayer time was over, I walked over to my friend Carla. As a black woman, a sister in Christ, I figured she might be able to help me understand the anger that I had witnessed that day, the anger um, at the student gathering, the anger expressed in the prayer time, and the anger that was spilling out into the streets of Los Angeles. And I went up to her and I said, Carla, can you help me understand why black people are so angry because of the outcome of one trial? And I'll never forget how Carla responded to me. She looked straight, me, straight in the eye, looked me straight in the eye, and I could see the anger still there in her eyes. And she said to me, if you have to ask me that question, then I can't help you. And she turned away and walked um, out of the chapel. I walked away feeling even more uncomfortable, more tense, and all the more confused. The question that haunted me that night and, and in the days to come was, how can I be a Christian brother to my sister Carla and my other black sisters and brothers? What am I supposed to do? Maybe you found yourself wrestling with similar questions these past couple of weeks as we've, we've witnessed a nationwide and now a worldwide outcry over the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many others. And all the racial brokenness depicted there, and that's plaguing our country. Well, very briefly, I want to offer up a word that will hopefully give us a sense of where to start. We've been in the book of Acts as a church, and so we will go back there again. And I want to start very quickly in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. At the very birth of the church, the Spirit manifested. The Holy Spirit was poured out and manifested by speaking in a host of different languages. Why different languages? Why was that the way the Holy Spirit revealed himself? It could have been all manner of different ways the Holy Spirit could have shown up in power and um, revealing sort of God's presence and the new kingdom um, had come. But it came, he came through speaking different languages. 
I think there was purpose in that. Because from the moment that the church was born, God intended it to be multicultural. It was people hearing their own language being spoken that drew them towards the gathering of believers and they were able to hear the gospel and believe. Right from the start, the church was meant to be multicultural, not unicultural. And almost right from the start, there were problems because of that. Just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 6, um, we find a problem that's emerged. It says this, About that time, while the number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint arose. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service. The heart of the problem and the complaint that was being brought forth was this. There was a system in place to provide for food for those in need, particularly the widows um, in the community. Um, and that was an important uh, service. God, throughout the scriptures, um, has made it clear that um, those on the margins, widows, orphans, immigrants, these are close to God, people close to God's heart, and they need to be cared for by his community. And so they had this food system to care for these widows. But the system was flawed. And it was flawed because of blind spots that were present, resulting from cultural differences. If we look closely at the text, we see that there are two different cultures represented in the church at this time. There are Aramaic-speaking disciples, and that was the majority culture. That was the language spoken by Jews that were from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding region, and that was the majority culture. And then there are Greek-speaking disciples. Um, these are Jews that live much further away in part of sort of Greek territories and had come to faith um, in Jesus through Pentecost and now were a part of the community. And so you had a majority culture, the Aramaic-speaking disciples, and a minority culture, the Greek-speaking disciples. And there was real cultural differences and language barriers that were present between these two communities. And it says that the disciples of the majority culture, the Aramaic-speaking disciples, were overlooking the Greek-speaking widows. They were overlooking. They weren't seeing. They had a blind spot towards the, win the widows in the minority culture. See, blind spots are part of the human experience. We all have them. For me, that night um, of the LA riots, for me to ask Carla that question revealed to her that I had a pretty massive blind spot. There was a way in which I viewed the world that ignored or chose not to see the realities of racism and injustice. And she was not in the mood to have that conversation with me that night. And I don't blame her. See, blind spots, though we may not be aware of them and we don't intend to, they create division. They can cause unintentional hurt and they undermine trust in our relationships with one another. Did you catch the word that's used in the story? Um, from Acts chapter 6. The word that's used is accused. 
About that time, the number of disciples continued to increase. A complaint arose. The Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples. They bring an accusation. Accusations happen when there is division, when there's hurt, and there's a lack of trust. But the best prescription for blind spots is a simple one. It's not always an easy one, but it's a simple one. And that's simply to listen. When the complaint is brought forward, as the story goes on, the 12 apostles, who are all Aramaic-speaking disciples, part of the majority culture, they listen to the complaint. And through listening to what their, the minority culture brothers and sisters are bringing forward, they recognize that the system that's in place is broken. And so they act to address it. And they come up with a solution that the whole community um, is satisfied with. And the story ends by saying, and the word went out with even more power and more and more disciples came to faith. They overcame that early hurdle. Well, my brothers and sisters, I think the lesson that we can take from that story is that when it comes to racial division and strife, when it comes to mistrust and barriers, um, the place to start is to listen. Listening builds or reinforces trust. Listening helps us to learn things that we didn't know. Listening ensures that actions taken to address the problem actually address the problem. And listening is one of the most concrete expressions of love there is. A favorite quote of mine is from Christian author David Augsburger. He says this, being heard, right, being listened to, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. And so that's where we want to start as a church, to become better listeners. And so I invite you to listen to the conversation that you're about to watch between Pastor Don and Pastor Bob that took place earlier this week. All right, well, uh, Baseline, we have a really uh, a special opportunity this morning, and we're going to hear from um, Pastor Bob Smith, who is the senior pastor at Harvester Missionary Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And his connection to Baseline is that he's the dad of uh, Judy Campbell Smith and the grandfather of uh, AJ and Joe and um, father-in-law, I guess you'll take that too, of Jeff Campbell Smith too. And so I, uh, Pastor Bob and his family has been out to our church a few times and um, we're just uh, really grateful to have you on here today, Bob. So thank you so much for joining us and helping us to kind of learn and listen throughout this, this time that we're in right now. So. It's good thank to you. Have you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So, kind of, our first question is just: Can you give us your perspective on what is happening in our nation across these last few weeks in terms of race and uh, kind of the division and the reconciliation that's maybe needed there? But what's your perspective on that? Um, it's really an exp the it's expression of the frustration. There is a, an immense amount of frustration. 
Um, I, I think it's the pandemic. It's the um, high levels of unemployment and um, um, just the blatant systemic racism that was seen in the video that has, you know what I mean? Um, we always thought that maybe if we had cameras, people would, would behave differently on camera. Mm -hmm. And there for almost eight minutes, this police officer with people challenging him to, to change um, his behavior, and he didn't. Um, it, it's a little a level of anger and frustration that's here. This is an outbreak of that. Um, I understand it. Uh, I think it's the, the, the great hope of the Obama years and the, then the see the deterioration of that by some of the, these younger people. Um, they're different. They're, they're different than um, our generation the, that went through the civil rights movement that believed in peaceful pushing of the systems. Um, this younger group is not for that. They need, they're looking for structural change and how we do what we do. And um, I think that this is an expression of that. This is a long sustained building up that has happened with um, segments of our population that I think are now gonna lead to, have to lead to some kind of real structural changes in what we do and how we do it. Mm, that's helpful, that's helpful. So, um, so you've been to our church and so a high percentage of our church were white and um, and it's difficult for us sometimes to understand what uh, systemic racism is like. We don't usually, we don't experience that. So do you have any sort of personal experiences of, of this systemic racism that could help us to kind of understand what that's like a little bit? I call, I, I give the analogy of systemic racism. It's like the fish is the last one to discover water. You know, mm -hmm. they live in an environment that um, the water environment for the fish is just the way it is. And for the majority of people of our nation, um, the system, the way this works is just part of the way it is. It's, it has always been that way. It feels comfortable. Um, one of my favorite stories I give is when um, in 1995, I started working at Moody Bible Institute. And um, during the summer, I decided to move into my office, you know, before school started. It was in August, early August before faculty institute and the rest. And I'm carrying in and out boxes and I'm carrying out boxes and emptying them out and taking the boxes back to my car to take them home to fill in more stuff, books and computer stuff. And as I'm moving my stuff in and out, um, someone called, secu called security on me. Mm -hmm. So three security guards show up uh, wondering who am I, what am I doing? And um, I'm a faculty member here. It was just assumed that if there was a black man moving boxes in and out of a building, it had to be something criminal. Mm. And that's just one of many stories. And most African-American men of my age, over 16 or 17, 18 years old, have a story of um, just being judged, being followed in a, in a jewelry store or um, not understood as the leader or the boss at their job. Mm -hmm. um, and this is part of that. It's just assumed that, oh, they, they can't be doing something legal. It's, it, it's the assumption, even in these protests, that all of the, uh, these uh, people protesting are hooligans and violent and where there's a very small majority of the people that are protesting are actually breaking the law and looting and doing the rest. But it's, just some, it's, it's how we look at the news. 
it's it's the pictures they portray um the the people they interview on the on the news about the situation they want to pick people that support um a view that of discrimination and, and and prejudice and i think that um we're going to have to come to grips with the reality that there is such thing as racism and systemic racism that that there is a sense of white privilege and i'm not using that in a, a negative way i'm saying that that sociologists will tell you that if you're a white male over the age of 45 you know what i mean you just are treated better in our society than somebody who's of a, a minority or or is younger or or is a woman um all of these are just part of the way it is now it's not right right and um What's most frustrating for me is that um, the church, we shouldn't see this as a church. I shouldn't have to experience this at Moody Bible Institute. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, sure. you, you, you think of all the places, you know what I mean? Um, they have black professors working here. They have black administrators here. D.L. Moody had minorities in the school in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be this way. And, but then you're, you're bumped into it all the time, mm -hmm. even among our Christian institutions. And that leads to, among Christians, a high level of frustration uh, with the church as it deals with these issues. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that kind of leads into another question is, so uh, what, what role can and should the church play in bringing about racial reconciliation and helping to change some of what we've been experiencing recently? What role can we play? Um, I'm a preacher. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I want to, and so I, I refer to the word. And, and um, one of my two favorite passages that deal with this is one is in Ephesians five eleven that says, "Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose it." We encounter systemic racism and prejudice all the time in our dealings, in our businesses, and we as believers have to start calling people out on this. We have to start calling people out. Um, not in anger, but out of the love of Jesus, especially the body of Christ, to say, hey, you know, you really can't tell that kind of joke. You really mm -hmm. can't make that kind of comment. That's, that's hurtful. Yes, there are no minorities here. There are no, but that is just a painful kind of statement. We need to call them out. The second passage I like is, is, is in Micah 6, 8, where it says, um, he has told this old man what we should do, what is good, mm -hmm. to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Yeah. I like the word act justly because what it's saying is that justice and righteousness, whatever that, how you find, define that word there in the Hebrew, mm. is something you do. We evangelicals, we like to make statements about what is right, but we don't always want to engage doing the right thing. And the engagement of doing the right thing to challenge these systems, it, whether it's in our government, whether it's in our denominations, whether it's in our fellowships, that is painful. You know what I mean? That, that changing the structures, you know what I mean? It's like, you know what I mean? It's one thing to paint your kitchen, but there's another thing to totally remodeling it, taking it all apart and rebuilding it. That, that means you're going to be without a kitchen for a, for a couple of weeks. It means, it means you're going to have to eat in ways you didn't eat before. We need to remodel 
our understanding of how we do race relations and how we deal with the systems, the governmental systems, the, the systems of poverty and injustice and, and sickness. Jesus was actively engaged in the brokenness of people. And we, the Church of Jesus Christ, need to rediscover that aspect of the, the Gospels. Jesus came and says, I, I came to, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the captive, to usher in the, a whole new year, of, of the year of Jubilee almost, the idea that slaves would be set free, debts would be paid off. That is not making the Gospel social. I believe the Gospel is inherently social. And we, the Church of Jesus Christ, need to know where we can act out those things, acting justly in our society. Mm. That's really good. That's really good. Hey, I have one other question I just thought of right here is, um, could you um, give us a picture of what you hope the world will be like for your grandkids, Joe and AJ, when it comes to race? Um, I have always hoped you know what I mean? I, I talk with Judy and my other kids and um, all of my family are interracial and biracial. And um, we dealt, we've dealt with this years and years ago. You know what I mean? Years ago. Um, we tried to raise our children in a non-racially charged environment. Um, I have hope. I have hope because I think the conversation today is different than we'd had it years before. I think people are really, uh, the, a younger generation is really challenging the systems. And I think if they can wield that energy into both political and structural power, which is what's gonna need. And we, this older generation, I'll put myself there. Um, allow them to lead, you know what I mean, as painful as it might be. I think my grandkids um, will grow up in a less racially charged environment. The one good news, and I mean this is good news, is that our nation is becoming more and more diverse. The demographic statements are that there's going to be no majority people in another 30 years or so. And I think that that's going to cause all of us to live and interact in ways that we have never done it before. You know, we don't have it here in Indiana, but oh, you already feel it when 25% or 30% of your population is Hispanic. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That is going to be the future. And our churches don't always represent that. But um, we are going to have to start doing the work of, of crossing those lines. And I think there's real hope for our grandkids. Mm. That's great. Oh, Pastor Bob, thank you so much for your words and, and um, who you are. And uh, I think, again, you're helping us get into a place of learning and, and understanding a little bit more about who we are and who the church can be and what the future is. So uh, we look forward to when the next time you come out to visit. Yes. Um, you know what? Let's plan on having you preach next time you come out to visit. Would that be all right? That would be, be great. Just let me know. You're a preacher. All right. I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> all right. God bless you. Thanks so much again. All right. Thank Take you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.